0: Okay, it's uh, 7.30 p.m. sharp at Singapore time. Welcome all to this webinar, uh, and good morning, afternoon, and evening to you, depending on where you're located. Uh, My name is Tilak Doshi. I am the Visiting Senior Research Fellow at the Middle East Institute. Uh, For those of of you not familiar with the Institute, uh, MEI is an autonomous research entity within the... National University of Singapore. Uh, it looks at and, and researches the greater Middle East region across the political, economic, and social dimensions, and what it means for Singapore, Southeast Asia, and Asia in general. Um, it is my pleasure and my privilege uh, to moderate today, uh, today's session, which will look at oil and gas scenarios and prospects for the Gulf states uh, in a net zero by 2050 world. Um, Before I uh, introduce the topic, let me take this time to introduce this excellent panel uh, uh, which is gathered from around the world. Um, I'll introduce and just uh, briefly give their bios before I I hand it off to the first uh, speaker after the introductory remarks uh, to this topic. Uh, Dr. Stephen Griffiths is a senior vice president, uh, research and development, as well as professor of practice at the Khalifa University of Science and Technology at the UAE in Abu Dhabi. Uh, He is uh, well known uh, in in the university and academic environment, but he's also had positions, uh, various positions uh, prior to his current uh, uh, place in Khalifa University. He was at Mazda uh, previously, um, the UAE's R and D for uh, entity for res- for renewable energy and new technologies in the energy sector. He's been advisor, uh, he is advisor to a range of committees as well as a number of journals in the energy uh, area. I won't go through all of them. Their bios, his bio is provided um, uh, on our website. And he, uh, Dr. Griffiths holds a PhD in chemical engineering from MIT and an MBA from the MIT school uh, Sloan School of Management. Our spe- second speaker uh, for uh, today's session is Dr. Maxime Shankery. He is uh, 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 the um, the Director of the Center for Economics and Management of Energy at the French Institute for Petroleum and New Energies uh, uh, in, uh, in France, obviously. And uh, he was CEO of an energy research firm, uh, which was uh, a consulting company specialized uh, in energy scenarios generation. He has spent time in the Middle East. Uh, he was a visiting research fellow at the King Abdullah Petroleum Studies and Research Center in Saudi Arabia, a uh, um on natural gas management issues. He was previously also uh, working uh, at Qatar Petroleum from uh, 2010 to 2015. Um, uh, and our last uh, but not least uh, speaker of the day is Mr. Guy Caruso. Uh, he is senior advisor at, uh, at the, in the Center for Strategic and International Studies, um, CSIS, uh, based in Washington, D.C. Uh, from 2002 to 2008, He served as an administrator of the EIA, the Energy Information Administration, the statistical energy uh, agency within the US government, uh, the Department of Energy, that provides independent data forecast and analysis of energy. Um, Mr. Caruso, uh, most of us have known him for many years. Uh, He brings extensive experience in energy particularly on topics relating to energy markets, policy, and security. So uh, with that brief introduction to our panel today, let me just uh, start off with some introductory remarks for today's session. Uh, On May 18th, the IEA published a landmark report on the pathway to net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Among the many assertions in its uh, 200-plus page report, Uh, was the rather bombshell call uh, to immediately end investments in oil and gas exploration and development. Uh, As you can imagine, uh, there there was a significant amount of coverage in the mass media and plenty of reactions uh, on all sides. Uh, For example, the Saudi uh, energy minister Uh, uh, was uh, widely quoted. Um, Prince Abdul Aziz bin Salman was widely quoted uh, as uh, calling the report uh, comparable to La La Land fiction. Um, He more recently uh, also uh, emphasized that uh, Saudi Arabia will drill to the last hydrocarbon molecule. Um, There were other reports. Uh, One day after the IEA report was published, uh, Reuters came out with a report uh, stating that Asia snubs uh, the IEA report, uh, citing some Asian energy officials. OPEC, uh, the OPEC Secretary came out with their statement stating that uh, the report uh, uh, was if if, uh, accompanied by actual stop. Uh, halting of oil and gas investments um, uh, would lead to instability in oil markets. So plenty of reaction all around. Following, following that report, uh, we've had on July 14th, the EU come out with the um, raft of uh, energy, uh, uh, climate change focused policies uh, aiming for net zero by 2050. And on July 19th, Uh, The U.S. Democrat Party uh, introduced a bill, uh, two of their congressmen introduced a bill on carbon tariffs on imports uh, 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 related to the um, carbon content um, in in those imports. Of course, the EU um, uh, package also included the very controversial uh, CBAM, they call it, uh, which is Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism. Um, Now, uh, of course, it should be noted that a significant number of institutions, global institutions, as well as governments, have uh, taken steps to to not only support uh, this net zero by 2050, but actually implemented some of the early policies, including EU. Of course, the leader in uh, in in climate change uh, policy, but also um, the UK and the Biden administration in the US. Um, Multilateral agencies like the um, uh, IMF, the World Bank, um, uh, are also on board with this. Uh, uh, And for many of us, quite, uh, uh, quite worryingly, even central banks will be Aligning themselves with this um, with this call uh, for net zero by 2050. Now, uh, the Gulf uh, Cooperation Council economies, still, as we all know, depend heavily on oil and gas for their national income, for their government budgets, and for social order. They have, all to varying degrees, embarked on economic diversification initiatives over the last several years. Mm-hmm. To reduce such dependency um, uh, with with varying degrees of success. However, the dual shocks of the relatively low oil and gas prices since the mid-2014 and uh, last year's pandemic-induced global economic slowdown um, uh, has led to very low oil prices um, and uh, it has brought the urgency for promoting economic diversification, expanding employment opportunities for its youthful population, and attaining fiscal sustainability. Uh, uh, These issues have become even more critical. Of course, today prices have gone up uh, uh, to around the $75 per barrel range. Uh, This webinar uh, will seek to explore some of the broad questions facing the GCC uh, economies. Um, How credible is the IEA pathway to net zero by 2050? Um, And how will this affect the price and volume outlook for oil and gas exports from the GCC? Uh, By discouraging private sector investments in the oil and gas sector, are the policies promoted by the IEA favorable to the national oil and gas companies of the region, uh, in that they will be able to uh, increase their market shares possibly uh, in global oil and gas markets? Um, And finally, are there specific corporate strategies that the GCC national oil companies will tend to favor uh, if the OECD countries do indeed proceed in adopting policies recommended by the IEA? in the net zero scenario, net zero by 2050 scenario. So with those, um, uh, with that broad uh, uh, series of comments, let me turn uh, the platform over to Steve, our first speaker of the day, Um, Steve. Thanks very much, Talak. I'm going
1: to use a few slides in my discussion. So just be kind enough, please, to let me know once you see my slides. Yes. Yes. Okay, great. Thanks very much. So I'm going to kick off the presentation of the the discussion today by talking about my perspective on many of the topics that Talak just raised, a very interesting set of questions for GCC countries, given this uh, growing global discussion on net zero. Since I'm the first speaker, before getting into the specifics on how I see the countries in the region here, the impact, I'll talk a little bit about net zero. And to start that discussion, net zero is part of the broader discussion around energy transition. Now, energy transition is something that we're all, I hope we're all very familiar with because we've been through a few of them. If you look at this slide here, going back uh, to the 1800s, we went through a period where we basically were a society based on renewable energy, although it was traditional biomass. And then with the Industrial Revolution and coal, we grew into a new form of energy. And then finally, in the last uh, many decades, Coal and oil and gas and the proliferation of hydrocarbons is a composite come together to create where we are right now. Our energy system, of course, renewables have grown as well. So we start to see the sustainability uh, come to play for us. So the question that comes now as we get into this discussion of net zero is what's going to happen to 2100, particularly as we start to further push these thoughts about how we are going to limit the emissions from the combustion of fossil fuels which is tied to, of course, this discussion of climate change. So when we look at this and we start to think further about where we're going with the discussion on net zero, there has been for, excuse me, I jumped a slide here. There's been for some time uh, a discussion around sustainable development. And so the IEA before the net zero had been pushing forward the sustainable development scenario, which is essentially net zero. It's just achieving net zero emissions by 2070 roughly, which would put us on a trajectory to achieve if we're lucky, Uh, two degrees uh, global warming relative to pre-industrial levels. So on average, if we come to a final warming, it'd be about two degrees. Now, the recent thinking is that it would be much more important for us to try to limit the global warming to 1.5 degrees, because when you get to two degrees, more and more of the climate issues we're already seeing now are just gonna be exacerbated. And so now the 2050 dialogue is on the table And this creates a discussion about how quickly we can move toward mitigating or eliminating emissions, which is going to be the main factor we're focusing on here around the the region and oil and gas. And as you can see from the trajectories, it's pretty ambitious to get to net zero, even now it's 2030, within this decade, we'd have to have a massive change in the way that we consume energy. So let's go straight to oil and gas, because that's really the, the point of the discussion today. Uh, there are many net zero scenarios now. Uh, there, you can talk about the arena scenario, the IEA scenario. I picked out the BP here to complement the IEA, and they all have a fairly similar trajectory for oil and gas. And I pulled out a few of the comments I thought were were common to what these different scenarios are showing us. One is that if we follow a net zero 2050 pathway, we have already hit peak oil essentially. The 100 million barrels would be the max we're going to see. And it will be declining from here fairly rapidly and by 2050 over the next three decades there'll be a substantial reduction in oil uh, demand in production around 25 million barrels a day very very sharp drop natural gas uh, similar it's going to be falling off not so much straight away in, in the middle of this decade and then over time it have slightly a lower reduction demand 40 50 percent by 2050. the difference in production between the two on the oil side as we get into what the scenarios project, the low-cost, low-carbon producers are going to be the ones that remain. So OPEC is well positioned in the IEA scenario. More than fifty percent of market share in oil production would come from open countries by twenty fifty. Natural gas a little bit more diversified. So more players in that arena, particularly as LNG becomes as prominent as pipeline, or more prominent than uh, pipeline uh, production distribution of natural gas. So around oil, things look pretty good if you're a Middle East country, so to speak. And the answer is, well, not really, if you consider the impact that reduced demand will have on price. So even if you're still a producer, as I'll get into shortly, what is the price impact? And the price impact, of course, having impact on revenue. So the GCC, the challenge we're going to face, I think the bottom line is that the economies here, as Talaq already mentioned, are very dependent on uh, oil and gas, typically oil revenues from export. So if you look at the economic dependence, GDP, although there's been efforts to diversify over the past several years, in the past decade, most of the countries, UE and Bahrain, are fairly dependent economically on the hydrocarbon sector. Exports heavily dependent on the hydrocarbon sector. Again, the UAE and Bahrain doing a bit better than the others. I think most worryingly, though, is the revenue situation. As many are aware, we don't have a very strong tax regime In the region here, ways to raise government revenues. And so much of the welfare that's been created in the region uh, in the past decade or so, past two decades actually, has come from the rents we get from exports, particularly of oil. In Qatar's case, natural gas has been quite helpful. So we're really not in a position where we are ready in the region to jump straight into a world where demand for oil falls precipitously and there is a big price impact, and I'll get to that point shortly. Now, when you look at this then, the question is, is is it inevitable that we're going to net zero? As Talak said, there's a lot of discussion today, a lot of interest and enthusiasm for this idea. And to answer that question, I go back to the point raised in in the introduction uh, from Talak, that the, the implication of net zero 2050 is that we have to stop developing any new oil fields immediately, and this is a focus on the oil sector. Natural gas, likewise, you have to stop developing new fields. We're only going to invest in sustaining what's already in place to meet residual demand in the future. Is this a risk to oil supply? Well, in order for us all to work, we would have to have a substantial change in the way in which people consume energy today. Now, starting today and going through the next decade and decades to come. And if that all plays out, then by 2030 is a net zero scenario tells us we'll hit 70 million barrels of oil, then that'll fall much further by 2050 to about 24 million barrels per day. Is that possible? Is that realistic? Does that create risk? And I think the answer to that is yes. So if you look at where many of the projections are to 2030, just given the dynamics amongst the countries that are in this dialogue, not everyone's agreeing to that zero, the possibility of having actually increased demand from what we've seen in the past—not not far below 100 million barrels, but actually above 100 million barrels a day of oil demand—is there. And so, even Wood Mackenzie, just in the past couple of weeks, has said they're foreseeing by 2030 a big gap in the amount of oil production needed, up to 20 million barrels, which means we're going to need high prices to incentivize new development, and hence we would not be able to dive into the net zero 2050 trajectory straight away. So there is a lot of debate. And so I would not say, finally, that it's completely out of the question. It's not going to happen. But I'd say it's unlikely given the fact we'd have to start today and and potentially have the ramifications that Talak mentioned about a disrupted oil market and and, uh, the fallout from that. Now, that said, I do believe that in the future, there will be a net zero. It may not be 2050, it may be 2070, it may be 2090. Someday it's going to happen. That's where we need to go, presuming that we all agree that climate change is, is, is largely induced by man made emissions from the combustion of fossil fuels. So, if we do get 2030 or later to a 70 million barrel per day type of uh, oil demand, what would that do to price? And so, IEA said 70 million barrels per day is $35 per barrel. If that were to come in 2030, maybe we'll come later. Sustainable development scenario I talked about previously is more like 2040 for this level of demand. Rethink X raised a lot of uh, interest a few years ago. They talked about shared electric autonomous vehicles, eliminating all consumption of, of, of gasoline for light duty vehicles. And in their trajectory, oil demand simply because of that would fall by 2030 to 70 million barrels per day and so you see $25 per barrel uh, price of oil. The point being, whether it's 2040, 20, 20, what have you, uh, or it's twenty-five or thirty-five dollars per barrel, you're going to hit many countries with uneconomical reserves. The cash cost of production is below the price of the international traded commodity, and so you uh, or above it, and so you actually would have to stop or shut in your production because you're not going to be able to do that without uh, produce without taking a loss. So. Whether or not this happens sooner or later, there does need to be strategies, and that's the point of the point of the discussion today: is what these strategies can be for countries to deal with this. So, look at four: reducing production costs, maximizing profit, trying to be a player that's in for the long term, moving downstream, probably more so petrochemicals and refining, assuming the demand for light-duty vehicle uh, is hit and internal combustion engine, and then investing into the low-carbon transition for sources of energy is another option and selling your assets, just divesting is a possibility. I won't talk about that, I'll talk about the first three. Starting with the perspective of the IOCs, the NOCs, I think the strategy we pick is gonna be very context dependent. If you look at the charts, anything that's in blue or light blue is going to be an internationally operating NOC, national oil company or NOC. And so there's a lot of reserves, oil reserves in particular, uh, as well as gas, that these countries, the national oil companies are producing within their countries. And so they need to monetize these reserves the best of their ability. It just makes natural sense to leverage your asset. Some NOx uh, have other plays. And so we see in the region, Saudi Arabia, the OE are going heavily downstream, petrochemicals in particular, tar, liquefied natural gas. They're not stopping. They're going to be building up more capability for LNG in the future. So I think there is a, a, an opportunity here for, at least in that, beyond uh, beyond the current thinking of of the companies maybe going in a different direction or uh, eliminating their activities in space, there is an opportunity for this downstream diversification. Uh, As far as the continuation of production, so as I said previously, low carbon, low cost is where the continuing producers are going to be in the region. We are the low carbon, low cost producers for the most part, uh, Sharing that we're now with a few other countries in the world. As you can see here, uh, the most carbon efficient producer is UAE, Qatar, Saudi Arabia is, is in that club. As far as new projects being developed, which is on the right-hand side of the slides, they're still fairly cost-effective. These would be the new development projects. This is not the marginal cost of current extraction, which is barrel dollars per barrel. Uh, new projects under development, still within the, the range of $25, $30 per barrel uh, here when the The uh, trajectory was looked at National Resource Governance Institute. They put forty dollars a barrel because that was a sustainable development scenario price point. They were concerned with the point being that there is a low cost of production in the region. So I think long term, secondarily, you know, we're not just going to move downstream. We can also continue to export hydrocarbons because of the carbon and uh, cost efficiency of what we do here. That said. Innovations required. We do have to continue continue to lower costs because there are margins to be at least uh, attempted to be achieved. And then we also need to, as I said previously, look after this government revenue. So hydrocarbon dependent. If you look, this is kind of interesting. Well, I looked very recently a very recent publication from Atlantic Council, their Oil Market Transition Resilience Index, to reinforce my point uh, and to complement my comments on low cost, low carbon, because of low geopolitical risk amongst oil producing countries. Fiction particularly the open countries. Saudi, the UAE, the Gulf countries, Kuwait included, are expected to be increasing their market share in in the coming years and decades as we move toward whatever the scenario is. Sustainable development scenario I talked about, production gap report. They're all talking about moving toward much lower levels of oil production in the future uh, with some of the countries because of the stability, um, cost and carbon efficiency, increasing market share. Green Arrow being those that are projected to gain share and those expected to lose share uh, because of their instability and or high costs for production or lack of carbon efficiency on the bottom. The only takeaway I'll say with it really is I've not brought a previously on this slide is that I'm not entirely sure that the GCC countries and other countries that have to deal with the fallout of fragile and failing countries not being able to uh, maintain stability because they have no more revenue from exports. I'm not sure if this scenario plays out Quite the way we'd hope it to, to play out because many of these countries are close to goal. So you'd want to keep that in mind as, as such considerations are made. And As I start to close out, or just last point, where do we go uh, beyond the idea of moving downstream, refining chemicals, uh, maintaining production? I think all the knocks, they do have to prepare for a future in which they will need to do something different, whether it's now or it's 100 years from now, what can you do? And uh, you know, unlike the international companies, getting into the pure energy company concept, producing uh, low-carbon electricity or what have you, may not be the core competence. The circular carbon economy was championed last year by the Saudi presidency of uh, G20. I think this is where the knocks will go. So it's consistent with what they do as a business. We don't try to get rid of carbon. We try to reduce it, of course, and then reuse it, recycle it to the extent possible. This would leverage the ability to take on the technologies that the national companies are already dealing with today carbon capture, uh, maybe in the future direct air carbon capture, carbon uh, sequestration and storage, uh, operating through a uh, much lower uh, carbon emissions production uh, set of technologies and scenarios, including reduced methane emissions, would be quite important, even moving it further downstream um, into some of the low carbon fuels which are gonna be important in the future. And I'll talk about before I close, hydrogen being one of them. I mentioned con- completely consistent with the circular carbon economy, the green LNG and Qatar. Qatar will be a major LNG producer. They're gonna to continue to increase their capacity, but they're trying to be sustainable. They're showing that uh, they are using renewable energy to power their operations, CCS, CCUS, part of their idea. And then if you're familiar with LNG, there's an issue around boil off of uh, during shipping and transport, losing some of the energy content the shipment and they're also trying to deal with that, so they have a fairly robust strategy for the quote green LNG. So, I think the, the IOCs are, it will go in one direction, NOCs in another, trying to leverage their core competencies. Qatar and the other GCC countries have a great opportunity in, in low carbon gases. I will mention here, um, in the last point about the hydrogen, this is a big part of the net zero uh, IEA net zero outlook, and so I do think. If the NACS are going to go into a place where it's, it's a core competence that is consistent with what they do as a business, trying to go to this view that hydrogen is going to grow by over five times and its uh, current global demand currently largely being used by refining and ammonia producers into a much divert more diversified set of uh, downstream uses, as you see here on the right hand side, carbon capture uh, from steam methane reforming, autothermal reforming that's a blue hydrogen and getting into the turquoise hydrogen with methane pyrolysis all completely consistent and so there can be a business for the NOCs in this Uh, as you can see quite a bit of the gas is going to go toward hydrogen according to the IEA's net zero scenario even in refining I mean if there's one area where it's being considered almost uh, incontrovertible that there will be a role for hydrogen it's in the production of uh, green hydrogen blue hydrogen low carbon hydrogen it's in the production of low carbon ammonia and that could be used in shipping. So as you see here, that's a, a major opportunity as well as other different products, which currently are the focus of refineries. So that's another area in which I think the NOx are going to move and they already are. So closing out, transition I think will happen over time. am not sure if it's 2050, but it will happen at some point, which means transition is important. Uh, oil producers and exporters in the region, although they may, may still be producing, the price point is unlikely to be what it is recently and in recent years. And so dealing with revenue uh, reduction is going to be something that has to happen, although they may be able to monetize their natural resources quite well. Moving into this low carbon, um, low cost production mode to be an ongoing producer is important. Moving downstream is important, petrochemicals to the extent there's demand, and then getting into opportunities like hydrogen, uh, particularly blue hydrogen, I think is quite important. I just put in bold here, Hydrogen will not, and I don't see any way it can because of the way in which it's going to be developed and the way it's potentially, if it gets traded, the extent it's traded, I don't think that's going to be by any means a replacement for the type of revenues that are generated by the the Nocs in the Gulf region today uh, in the long term. So it needs to be having that as just one part of a broader strategy. So that's thank you, and I'll look forward to the discussion that's coming up later.
0: Thank you. you. Uh, Maxim,
2: can I get you to take over the platform, please? Okay, thank you very much, Tilak. Uh, Let me also share my screen and a few slides that I prepare. But first, uh, thank you again for your invitation to this uh, webinar and to have the chance to discuss uh, such uh, interesting and exciting, I would say, uh, subject uh, Uh, with uh, this audience. So let me share my, uh, where it is, my slide. Okay. Here. So I think that you you should see my slides right now. Yes. Is that that correct? Okay, perfect. Uh, So uh, maybe to to just begin uh, with a short presentation of uh, what is uh, IFP school and uh, IFP uh, energy nouvelle or new energy. So we are... a kind of a a public research center uh, dedicated to energy and uh, transportation. It means that there is uh, around 1500 uh, researchers well, researching all technologies that are uh, for optimizing the current one, as well as creating the new one. And uh, within this uh, institution, there is a, well, IFP school, uh, where we are uh, teaching many graduate uh, programs, both for uh, our uh, engineering students, but uh, as well as for uh, some uh, economics and management uh, oriented engineers. And it's where I am in this center in uh, energy economics and management. Uh, I, I As you ask me, Tilak, to, like to, to kind of look at this uh, transformation of our economy, of our global economy by 2050, and to look at specifically of this scenario of net zero emission in uh, 30 years, I pick up one of the graph. Uh, from the report from the International Energy Agency, and uh, that state a bit what will be needed in terms of uh, investment and technology in order to reach this target, net zero emission uh, in 30 years. Uh, The first thing that strikes me is... That, uh, as uh, my colleague uh, Stephen uh, said previously, there will be a kind of a no new investment in the oil and gas or fossil fuels kind of uh, uh, industries. Uh, the second thing is that uh, in the coming few years, in 10 years, 15 years, it means that the electric vehicle uh, become dominant. A few years ago, we had Tony Seba that were uh, kind of presenting this kind of uh, very disrupting uh, way to look at the industry and how uh, electric vehicles and uh, uh, renewables will take over. And well, now it's uh, the main trend. Uh, Even the International Energy Agency is stating that well, will be uh, in 10 to 15 years if we are to to get to this net zero emission uh, goal uh, with a, a lot of electric vehicles and that it's becoming uh, dominant uh, as well it means that uh, power in building heating is kind of uh, going for uh, decarbonization and uh, so it means that uh, in all of that uh, there is a lot of investment that will uh, need to be done uh, it's striking to say that uh, well we will have uh, hundreds or thousands of gigawatts of electrolyzer for hydrogen but as well as a uh, gigawatt of uh, for solar and wind uh, to produce electricity uh, Another thing is uh, that still in 2050, uh, there will be uh, some uh, fossil fuels being used uh, worldwide, but it will be clean fossil fuels in a sense that their emission will be kind of balanced by uh, uh, CO2 capture. And uh, this uh, CO2 will be either uh, stored underground or uh, well reused in uh, some uh, so some kind of uh, 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 in some kind of uh, materials, in a kind of, uh, you, you know, uh, it's kind of easy once you've got your CO2 to add some hydrogen to it and then get back into the, the, the carbon cycle, I would say, with methanol and many other uh, things uh, like that. So altogether, what is interesting is that uh, most of these uh, technologies exist. Uh, everything that is stated there is already uh, demonstrated. So it means that the main challenge uh, will be, in fact, to scale up uh, all of that in order to reach uh, the size that is needed uh, in order to get to this uh, net zero emission uh, world. So, uh, in my talk uh, now that we, we've got kind of uh, this context, uh, I will focus a, a bit more uh, on uh, what it, will, it means for uh, GCC countries and especially to look at specific solutions uh, regarding this uh, uh, capturing the CO2 from the atmosphere and how. Uh, GCC country could leverage, in fact, uh, their storage capabilities and their fossil fuels uh, into a net zero emission world. So the first thing and uh, of this uh, new world is that, uh, well, uh, the oil demand is kind of uh, falling down very quickly. And here I, I, I put... Uh, on the slide, uh, kind of what is the oil demand, uh, according to uh, the uh, International Energy Agency scenario. So from close to 100 million barrels per day in uh, 2019, we will go to around 55 million barrels per day in 2035, and then in 2050, there there will be only uh, around 20 to 25 million barrels per day that will be used worldwide. If we look at the uh, kind of cost curve, uh, and I simplify kind of uh, the the thing here, I put uh, the the cost curve that uh, was uh, uh, well, that is currently uh, close to, to something like that. Uh, the blue one is kind of the cash cost uh, for, the, for oil, and the green one is when you add this, uh, 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 all the tax and royalties on the uh, uh, cost of oil, on the cash cost. So, what is very interesting uh, to, to when you look at this curve, uh, so the first result is uh, uh, really uh, you uh, over this long term, over these thirty years, it means that uh, this zero price will settle uh, a lot lower than than today. It means that uh, if we are in a world that is using only 20 to 25 million barrels per day, it means that, uh, as you can see on the the graph, uh, we are in a world where uh, uh, the the cost of producing this oil will be uh, really low. The second thing that is, uh, as a result, of course, uh, it's uh, the GCC country revenue will decrease. In a sense that, uh, over this uh, long term, uh, over this uh, long term, yes, uh, uh, market analysis, uh, we can say that the price of oil uh, will settle as a marginal long term. Cost. So it means that it will be, uh, as you can see, something around this. Uh, well, if you add some taxes, between uh, ten to twenty dollar per barrel. The, uh, another thing that uh, is uh, very interesting through this uh, analysis, uh, it means that when we look at uh, the the, the the curve. Uh, in fact, there, there is some kind of uh, a plateau, and a kind of long plateau uh, up to 40 million barrels per day in terms of production, and that means that there will be a lot of competition between many producers. And that means also that this producer will use the only leverage that they've got, which is their fiscal framework, uh, in order to compete uh, in this environment. Uh, in a sense that sure, a GCC countries have got a cost advantage in terms of uh, uh, production cost. As we can see, uh, UAE, Iran or Saudi Arabia are at a very low uh, cash cost. But uh, if we had a few dollars, we will have uh, Russia or Iraq as well. And uh, if we look at uh, the uh, fiscal framework, then we've got many other people that can come into the equation. So it means that there will be a very interesting and uh, interesting competition in this new world with a net zero emission world with uh, such uh, oil demand. Let me uh, go a a bit further, uh, just uh, to to, to mean that uh, uh, if we follow what uh, the International Energy Agency is telling us, means that the revenue uh, for uh, oil uh, country, oil and gas uh, producing economy will fall. And in fact, the the revenue is cut in half every decade. Usually this kind of uh, uh, loss of revenue means that there will be more social or political instability uh, within this uh, uh, GCC country. In a sense that uh, the the government can buy the social peace or the peace and harmony in the country. Uh, Interestingly also uh, in this study, we can see that our gas producing countries are less impacted in this uh, part, uh, uh, in this analysis. So altogether, there is still a big question is how could GCC country diversify to replace this lost revenues? And it's a huge assumption that they would like to do that and not just play a kind of a financial play. player saying, okay, we, we take as much as we want. We put that in a sovereign fund. And uh, uh, from that, we, we use all of that as a kind of a financial revenues. But uh, let's see that they will also go for some industrial solution. And on that, it's kind of a study that uh, we did uh, just uh, last year, and uh, what we did is kind of look at the the, the same kind of uh, hypothesis as the International Energy Agency. In fact, we were kind of uh, reusing the the uh, COP21 agreement, uh, stating that uh, the world will go for uh, uh, 2 degrees Celsius by uh, 20 uh, hundred. And so we tried to calculate, to make an economic evaluation of what uh, will that mean. So, in order to do that, we had to make uh, a lot of assumptions and uh, to to make this modeling uh, the model. In fact, we had to say, okay, an international uh, carbon market exists uh, in order for a country to be able to have some uh, strategic uh, uh, possibilities, as to say, uh, should I uh, do more abatement or should I trade some. uh, carbon emission rights. Out of this uh, study, so uh, the first thing that was uh, that was very interesting is that it was possible to, to reach this uh, net zero emission as well in uh, 2100. Uh, uh, so a bit later than the International Energy Agency, but uh, still. The second thing that was very interesting is that uh, uh, if you, uh, add into the mix of the available technology uh, direct air capture which is a technology that is kind of capturing the co2 from the atmosphere and then once you capture it you can store it underground Uh, as well as the beccs which is uh, kind of uh, reusing biomass burning it capturing the carbon and uh, uh, storing the carbon uh, as well uh, underground. So two technologies that where there is a lot of research being done currently, uh, it was possible to reduce significantly the uh, the cost for the world uh, uh, of this net zero uh, emission. And when I say significantly, it's really significantly in a sense that uh, there is uh, over 1% of discounted GDP that will be, in fact, uh, avoided if this technology are uh, used. Uh, if we go just a bit further in the, uh, in the analysis, we, we try to kind of uh, set up a different uh, uh, I would say a group of country uh, in the world in order to see for each of them, what would be this uh, the cost for each of the, the group of country. So we identify the GCC country. And uh, uh, in fact, uh, uh, when we, you read this uh, yellow line, in fact, how, do, how does that read? is uh, here you've got the cost in order to uh, make the abatement, in order to have the direct capture implemented or the uh, BO CC, carbon capture and sequestration. Here will be the uh, term of change. So it's mainly the loss of revenue, gain or loss of revenues. And here will be uh, the revenues from the emission trading. What's interesting in uh, our calculation, is that for GCC country, uh, the first, first thing is that when they implement direct capture, they will be able to gain revenue by uh, trading their uh, emission rights that they will have uh, generated that way. Of course, uh, I would say uh, if you go want, would like more details, you can go to the article, it's on the, the web and uh, you, uh, you, you can see exactly how we use the model, what hypothesis assumptions that we had, uh, etc. But uh, so the main uh, thing that is uh, interesting here is that this GCC country uh, will have a huge uh, gain Uh, if they implement uh, such uh, technologies. And uh, uh, in fact, uh, when we we calculated uh, this uh, uh, thing, uh, they they will save uh, uh, an order of uh, 2.1 trillion dollar, it's 2,100 billion dollar over the next 80 years, Accumulated, of course, so it's, not, it's a lot, but uh, still uh, manageable. Uh, and uh, what I would take out of that, it means that this country uh, need definitively to uh, invest in the feasibility at scale of this direct air capture technology in a sense that uh, Whatever uh, dollar that they will put in the research and development of this technology will have a significant uh, return on investment. So that's uh, the first, I would say, uh, take out from the study. Uh, The second one uh, is that uh, uh, GCC countries. are historically uh, not really involved in the climate discussion. But when we uh, went through the study, it appears that uh, the rules by which the carbon budget will be shared among the different countries is also a determinant of how much you, you will be able to save for your country or to not have to pay for your country. And it means that uh, GCC country, and in fact any other oil and gas producing country, need to be uh, proactive to negotiate this COP agreement, and that there is a huge also return on this kind of effort. Uh, of course, in our study, we did not include uh, very uh, all the technology with hydrogen, and that will be, in fact, the next domain that uh, will be in our study. We are currently doing it uh, this summer, so it will be uh, by the end of the year where there will be uh, exact uh, uh, number assessment of what uh, could be in fact see uh, also the impact of uh, hydrogen technologies including in uh, for this country to 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 develop uh, to conclude my talk in fact so uh, when we, we look at uh, this uh, global model and uh, uh, specifically at GCC country, uh, what strategies they should uh, target, the first thing is catalyze innovation. Uh, in a sense that, uh, uh, as you see in this uh, energy transition framework, uh, you, you, you need to, to kind of uh, help innovation, technological innovation uh, to, to come, and this technological innovation uh, will be uh, selected uh, through kind of a societal acceptance. And uh, so it means that the second strategy that GCC countries uh, need to pursue is to establish the societal acceptance of clean usage of fossil fuels. And it's very important, not only in the Middle East, but also in Europe. Currently in Europe, uh, most of the discussion is about uh, no fossil fuels at all. So when people speak about blue hydrogen, so hydrogen coming from uh, natural gas and uh, capturing the CO2 after the steam reforming, It means that, uh, well, there there should be no blue hydrogen in Europe. So the second uh, part of the strategy for this country is to have this societal acceptance. So that way they can continue to produce, export fossil fuels and use them uh, in different uh, sectors of the industry. And the last one uh, is, uh, as I said, negotiate the pace and rule of global carbon management uh, in a sense that uh, according to uh, the uh, the rules, uh, I would say GC country can lose their shirt in that. Uh, in a sense that uh, if you go for a grandfathering uh, kind of uh, a rule or a population-based rule, uh, this this country will get nearly no carbon budget. So they need to uh, set up some, uh, to to, to play, to negotiate, what should be the correct uh, ruling in order to to share this uh, carbon budget uh, worldwide. And I would say that will conclude my talk. Uh, Thank you very much for your attention.
0: Uh, Thank you, Maxime. Um, uh, It's actually quite interesting that the two talks um, uh, by you and by Steve um, uh, occupy a spectrum. I think Steve's talk was uh, somewhat less, um, 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 less confident that many of these technologies are as, as readily available uh, wells Maxime, I, I find your talk uh, a bit more optimistic with respect to the outcome of research and uh, R&D and, and that uh, 2050, uh, net zero by 2050 is in fact uh, somewhat more achievable uh, from, 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 from your talk. Uh, at least that's, uh, that's a good um, uh, spectrum of opinion, I, I, I believe. And um, uh, let us now go to our last speaker, Guy, um, uh, for this uh, session. Guy, over to you.
3: Thank you, Tillich. Uh, and, uh, and I also thank uh, Steve and Maxine for such excellent presentations that set the stage for uh, why the IEA net zero emissions uh, analysis is so important for uh, GCC, which has been made clear by both Steve and and Maxime, and uh, so I I will spend my time uh, more from the Washington, let's say, or U.S. perspective. Uh, and clearly, uh, it as everyone who studies this issue is aware, there the major shift. In administrations from uh, the Trump administration to Biden, has clearly been a significant factor in uh, in the outlook for whether we can actually achieve this transition to new uh, to net zero emissions. And I, having spent uh, eight years at the IEA, as uh, some of which as one of the directors, I can certainly understand the perspective. Uh, that Fatih Birol is coming from in, uh, in this new report by the IEA that was released uh, a couple months ago. And, and I, among, as, as Tilak pointed out in his introduction, there's been a lot of criticism to the uh, things like stopping oil and gas investments uh, almost immediately. And as Maxime pointed out, no new investments beginning in 2021 of course and steve said it's unlikely to happen and i completely agree with both of those points uh but uh the iea uh does certainly listen to its members and in the u.s is the largest consuming member and the largest consumer to the budget so I, i certainly uh, can sympathize with uh, where the IEA is headed in trying to listen to its, its members. Uh, uh, I think the, the things that immediately s- s- uh, come to surface in the Biden administration is uh, the, the, the emphasis in, in the transition away from fossil fuels. And that's clear in everything that has been uh, promulgated by President Biden and his team already. And, uh, and that includes uh, rejoining the Paris Accords and using the G7 and G20 to try to get uh, our allies and friends on board in, in, in moving toward net zero emissions. Whether it's 2050 or, or beyond, I, I think the main point is, the emphasis by uh, President and John Kerry has been, let's do what we can domestically and internationally to promote that, and that includes, very importantly, of course, this issue of capital investment in uh, in non-fossil fuels and in in uh, in demand re- in, in slowing down that as Maxim's point in his last uh, slides were getting demand down dramatically from what everyone was projecting just in recent years. And I think uh, we'll, we will see whether that uh, happens or not, but the companies are under a lot of pressure because public sentiment has changed in the United States and it's being reflected in the political uh uh, policies the policies of the biden courts but also as uh, Tillich mentioned in the congress there's a attempt to pass legislation that's going to impose carbon tariff tariffs on uh, ex imports of uh, energy by based on carbon some, similar to the eu cbam that that's, it could be simply a response to that but but i think it's more part of the larger picture of trying to uh, decarbonize. And uh, I I think the Republican party is not on board yet. So I don't see that legislation actually coming to uh, fruition in terms of uh, signed policy, but that's the direction we're headed. You see uh, in the public sentiments side of things, Things like Exxon being forced to take on three uh, new board members who are more uh, environmentally uh, oriented, let's say, Uh, and and that happens in in other companies as well. And so companies are clearly under a lot of pressure to reduce investments in fossil fuels, and that's going to continue. We're seeing some practical implications of of that already in the, in, the, in investments of, uh, of pension funds. And the other uh, area which uh, Maxime uh, mentioned was technology, and Steve mentioned as well, both with respect to hydrogen and other new technologies that would have to really step up, get anywhere near close to uh, net zero emissions by 2050, even 2070. Uh, the... Uh, budget that Biden submitted in the for 2022 fiscal 2022 includes a huge increase in uh, our our energy R&D that towards uh, the movement away from fossils and towards renewables and hydrogen uh, whether that actually occurs or not there's a huge controversy over whether we can achieve uh, as much as the administration, this administration would like through just technology. My experience is that technology cannot be ignored, of course, but it usually takes longer than than its uh, promoters say it will. But nevertheless, we have to move in that direction. And then the price of carbon, the policy change, huge policy change would be something that actually imposes a carbon price at the federal level that still looks like it's not likely to happen because of Republican opposition. Uh, and then you have the continuing, uh, conflict in the U S between federal and state policy. States have moved out of course, much more, uh, uh, farther out in in towards carbon price uh, imposing carbon price uh, and the, the Trump administration of course tried to suppress that and and but now Biden administration is uh, is supporting it so I I would I would see that uh, carbon tax unlikely to to pass uh, under the, on, even in the uh, with Biden up uh, promote Biden's administration, promoting that, uh, the technology for CCS and direct air capture clearly needs to step up. It's still very expensive. And I, I don't know that we, that kind of cost would be acceptable in, in the uh, current budgetary environment, but it's clearly the way we, we need to move. And, uh, and I think, uh, Transition uh, through the companies are moving in the direction of transition through acquisition in the U.S. We're seeing more acquisition of smaller companies that move towards uh, in the direction of the uh, 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 net zero emissions, but still, again, a long way to go. And capital expenditures on, uh, on non-fossil fuels are certainly increasing, but not nearly as fast as would be needed to meet the uh, meet the requirements. Uh, there was one report that said do we, I, I believe the IEA that said the IEA uh, goals would require a, a fivefold increase in efficiency improvements in on the demand side, I think, and would require geoengineering as well and uh, the outlook I, I think for the United States is that there will continue to be oil and gas investments well beyond the 2021 and, 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 and much farther, So that uh, something like 2050 uh, is far, I think as uh, has been implied by our previous speakers Unrealistic, but you know it's it's the direction we all agree. I think we're moving in, but we probably need to move. We'll, we'll move there with companies being and and governments being forced into a more pragmatic solution, which will take longer and require continued investment. So that although the impact on GCC is going to be significant even in a pragmatic uh, capital investments scenario that I think is more likely, it still will be significant. And I, I, I think uh, the uh, GCC and uh, will, I think, it serve their purpose more uh, efficiently by looking for pragmatic solutions and working uh, with with the uh, developed countries and uh, through multilateral institutions or bilaterally to move in that direction. So uh, with those very uh, brief remarks, uh, tilak I'm happy to join in on the uh, uh, discussion. That uh, I think we still have uh, yes, thank you. Uh, a fair amount of time for. Thank you.
0: Yes, uh, thank you, uh, Guy. And that was an excellent summary. Um, Uh, following the two speakers, uh, Steve and Maxime, and your comments on the US side of things and and how it is seen uh, by government and between parties as well as between the federal and state levels uh, is also um, absolutely essential in understanding how the US uh, will try to uh, influence uh, the direction uh, towards net zero uh, by 2050. Um, let me start um, uh, uh, the ball rolling in the Q&A uh, by referring to what is traditionally called the elephant in the room. Um, if you look at data from BP pri- just prior to the onset of the uh, COVID pandemic uh, shutdowns, uh, from 2014 uh, to 2019, in the five years, Uh, The incremental demand for energy um, was about accounted by the third world, by the non OECD countries, uh, about 80%. So we are in a situation where uh, less than, somewhat less than 20% of the world, uh, the OECD countries are determining or are at least trying to convince the rest of the world um, that uh, they are combined destiny should be one in which oil and gas and coal, of course, it goes without saying, uh, should be uh, uh, should be drastically reduced. Uh, now the question, and I think this question is for all three speakers, um, uh, would be given the technology today, um, just to what extent can you expect the third world, which accounts for, um, the vast majority of incremental demand uh, going out into the future, uh, where their carbon footprints are uh, a fraction, uh, you know, one-fifth or even less of, of the OECD countries. Do we actually see a realistic scenario where economic development in the non-OECD countries is being um, uh, Uh, put, uh, or or at least de-emphasized in order for uh, the use of fossil fuels to be reduced. Now that question, of course, uh, implies a certain assumption of technologies. Of course, in in the best of all possible worlds, all these technologies that we are talking about will spring about around the corner um, and hence assist not only in cutting down on fossil fuels, but carry on with the legitimate um, aspirations of 80% of the world's population for a higher standard of living. So on, on that point, I'll just give you one um, uh, one very um, uh, striking remark by uh, a senior analyst, JP Morgan. He was talking about CCS in his latest uh, 2021 energy report. And this is an investment bank um, Uh, they are fairly serious about these things. Um, He said that CCS was an example in which he found the highest ratio in the history of um, scientific thought, the ratio being in the numerator, the number of scientific studies on CCS, and the denominator, the actual number of CCS uh, projects that have actually taken off the ground, forget about being economic, Um, The the most recent uh, news has been on Chevron's uh, Gorgon LNG project in Australia, where they have failed um, in their long thought-out plan in capturing a significant amount of that CO2. So, uh, you know, without spending too much of time on this question, uh, uh, for each of the speakers, I would like to see how your view on technology um Balances with the with the aspirations of the developing countries with respect to future fossil fuel demand. Uh, perhaps uh, we can go in the same order that we introduced uh, that I introduced the uh, three speakers. So Steve, maybe you could have a go first.
1: Sure, it's a very good question because even when you look in the past week and look at the split between the developing countries, the developed countries, particularly Europe. So much discussion about this uh, focus on the 1.5 degrees target, the two degrees target, and so much disagreement amongst the G20 countries, which are the countries which really have to be accountable for making a net zero target work. India, as you know, a major uh, consumer of energy, a major future producer and current producer of emissions, very much not uh, aligned with moving very, very quickly to a net zero scenario. 2050. So there are certain issues we're gonna find with the countries that need to move quickly that are developing countries, which are gonna cause us challenges. Now, I think in the next decade, what has worked and what can continue to work is technological innovation has allowed us to bring the price of solar and wind energy down very low and it's competitive On 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 a purely economic basis. You can now deploy in most locations, a solar project or a wind project when the resources are appropriate and that project can deliver value compared to the the available fossil resources when you look at the issues around trying to supplant post 2050 the technologies which need to be in place in order to make uh, a net zero strategy work it becomes much more ambitious so the iea divided that 2030 2050 time frame into one where now the current technologies which are economically viable can be deployed Many countries can take these up on a marginal basis, and they can be successful. Post 2030, when you start to get into the technology we're alluding to, carbon capture, looking at the deployment of hydrogen, trying to get into decarbonization of heavy duty transport, these are going to be more difficult, I think, for the country to be able to absorb and adopt. Now, that's just on a technical basis. When you start to look at the social and political issues, the countries in which they'll have employment impacts by moving away from, say, coal. That's another whole set of issues that has to be dealt with. We talked about the GCC, but we didn't get into so much about the other countries, Southeast Asia, India, the like, which are going to have resistance simply because they're gonna have to have new economic scenarios in which they're able to live without having employment dependent on these sectors, which will be replaced and they'll be displaced. So I think the question on technology is probably the next 10 years, we can move ahead with what's in place. Innovation has already happened to allow us to move quickly Post 2030, we will need to see these countries be able to adopt new technologies, which will be more challenging, I think, to deploy in their context. And that's why you'll see resistance today from the non OECD countries to go extremely aggressively into a net zero 2050 plan.
0: Thank you. Uh, uh, Maxime, your views, please.
2: Well, first thing, it will be difficult to go further than what Steve already discussed. <laughs> but uh, maybe to, to stress a couple of points more. Uh, first thing is uh, typically when you look at uh, the last report from uh, Irena, uh, from uh, our colleague in Abu Dhabi, and uh, the renewable cost, we can see that in the past decades, uh, the cost of solar, of uh, wind, uh, decreased significantly. And we know that when you, you've got this kind of cost decrease, it means that this technology will be implemented. Uh, here is uh, the main issue for developing countries. Uh, will they have uh, enough uh, capital to invest in these new technologies? Uh, in a sense that uh, there is a significant investment that need to be done. Uh, And to answer this question, in fact, uh, I would say, uh, uh, currently, yes, because there is nearly, you've got money available at very low cost internationally, so you you can uh, uh, use that in order to invest in these new technologies, in this uh, new investment. But uh, as uh, we will get out of the uh, COVID crisis, uh, the cost of capital will increase, and in this case, it will be a huge question mark for the developing country to be able to to invest uh, at scale, and I mean at scale uh, in uh, these new technologies. So that's my first point. The second one is, uh, well, uh, we, we were talking about the G20 uh, discussions that are currently being placed, taking place in Italy. And, uh, but I remember uh, two years ago, it was in Tokyo, uh, in Japan, and uh, then it was mainly about hydrogen. And from that, uh, this decision, there was hydrogen roadmap everywhere. So now we've got hydrogen roadmap to develop hydrogen everywhere. Uh, Last year it was in uh, Riyadh and it was about this carbon management and our circular economy uh, for uh, CO2. And uh, uh, again, uh, that was very interesting because it kind of pushed uh, the issue about what do we do with this CO2. And uh, this year, it's uh, well, it's still a bit a question mark. But mainly, it's about the taxation of CO two emission or something like that. Or uh, I don't know. Well, we will see what will get out. But, but there is a lot of talk about that. Uh, Mister Perry, uh, for instance, uh, was uh, very talkative about that uh, a few days ago. Uh, so it, it means that uh, what it's. Means that, uh, uh, in fact, uh, all of that uh, we will need to have a price for the CO2, and that nothing will happen if there is not the right price for CO2. Uh, Maybe if you remember my presentation in our studies, uh, we were around at $480 per ton. Uh, in uh, by uh, 20 uh, well let's say 2050, in order to have this direct air capture technology implementing at a significant scale. So it means that we need to have a very significant price for CO2 emission in order to uh, kick off the investment, to kick off the investment in this uh, carbon and capture and sequestration, in hydrogen as well because hydrogen, it's, well, it doesn't do anything more than providing heat or power, uh, but without the CO2. So it means that the only thing that is difference between fossil fuel is really the, the cost of the CO2 emitted. So that's, uh, uh, I would say, my second point, uh, meaning that uh, we need to have this uh, a price for CO2 in order to have this implementation. And it was was missing, uh, I would say, 10 or well, more than that now, it's 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when there was the first experimentation for the storage of CO2. Uh, especially in Europe, there was huge uh, project and people saying, yeah, we'll do that a lot. And well, it was very nice, but nothing happened. As you say, there was more uh, uh, talking about than a real project uh, in the ground. And why? Because there was no price for the CO2. So there was no profitability that could be made. Uh, for uh, this kind of investment and it means that in the future if we want to go from this kind of uh, public spending to test technology into uh, public subsidies in order to build pilot into the last uh, steps that will be a private investment in a profitable technology you need to have a price on carbon and this price on carbon will be as we as i put in the study uh, well uh, several hundred dollars per ton uh, in uh, 10 to 50, well, uh, after we can discuss that, but in the next uh, few decades, it needs to be above uh, this uh, 250 $300 per ton.
0: Okay, uh, before I turn to you, Guy, uh, perhaps with uh, given your, your vast experience um uh, in D.C. and with government entities, uh, you, Uh, On this very vital question of R&D, perhaps you could uh, give us your views on the relative rules about private sector R&D versus government-directed R&D. You know, we've seen the the most significant miracle um, in energy in the last few decades, which is the fracking revolution, which was uh, very much uh, Texans with cowboy boots uh, doing it, uh, not uh, walks from Washington, D.C., uh, directing research. So perhaps you could give us your views on, on, on the relative roles and, um, and, and just how governments can play a role in promoting private sector-led R&D. Uh, is it merely a case of, of putting a price on carbon? Um, uh, and if you've got other views on, on, on this very important R&D um, uh, question, Related to you know technologies that we are expecting. Yeah, I think uh,
3: the government-directed energy R and D has been uh, uh, generally not a failure, but inconsistent, and that's the biggest problem, going all the way back to uh, believe it or not, Nixon's energy independence speech. He he proposed a lot of good energy R&D solutions, almost none of which were fully enacted. And partly, it's because uh, of the uh, inconsistency. When Reagan came in, it was a complete move away from uh, many of the energy R&D programs that had started under Nixon. So I think the the most important thing, and the cooperation between government and private sector, is c- consistency. And as several of the comments already here is that uh, one year it's hydrogen, and next year it's it's a different uh, solution. And uh, you know, natural gas vehicles were the thing under uh, under Clinton, and then it became cell fuels under. George W, now uh, electric vehicles are the flavor of choice. So I think the most important thing for government R&D is to be consistent. And unfortunately, that is not very uh, uh, compatible with a system, political system, where you have to be reelected every other year. So I think that's a real problem. And uh, one thing we haven't... um, Mentioned is uh, nuclear technology, which again is lost favor for a variety of reasons, mainly because of its cost. And uh, it's it has to play a role, especially if uh, the non-OECD growth that you referred to, Kalak, eighty percent, eighty percent of that's in China and India, and I think nuclear will. Uh, play a role certainly in China and perhaps more so in India. Uh, and the bottom line is that uh, I think the uh, capital cost of new technology, uh, excluding I think wind and solar, have done very well in the last de- decade or so, but other technologies that will be needed to reach net zero emissions by whatever your target year is, will need to uh, be less costly. Or as Maxine pointed out, a lot of these uh, developing countries will not spend the money to implement that. So I think that's gonna be a real a real challenge. And uh, I'd like to use uh, electric vehicles as an example. There's not a perfect analogy between Developed and under de- uh, in less developed countries, but uh, it, it, EVs, at least in the U.S., are still a higher income uh, customer base. You know, so if EVs are to reach those targets that are in the IEA report or in other reports, in order to uh, reduce the use of uh, liquid fuels. Uh, we're gonna to have to bring the cost down and and, and the the range uh, up. I I think um when it comes to R and D, a lot more work still needs to be done on batteries and other uh, energy efficiency improvements in the vehicles.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Guy. I've got a question from actually from a colleague of mine. Um, we used to work together at Copsock in 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 Riyad, and I believe uh, Maxim spent some time there too. Um, uh, uh, my colleague Jitendra Roy has asked Kendra, yeah. about, about uh, the, the, the fact uh, uh, related to uh, the transfer of funds by the developed countries uh, to the developing countries as part of the Paris Agreement. Uh, as you know, the Paris Agreement uh, from 2015, um, uh, one of the uh, conditions on which uh, most developing countries agreed to do their best, although they're n- under no legal requirements to uh, to cut back on emissions, but to at least have uh, nationally determined commitments. Um, uh, part of the deal was that $100 billion a year. Steve, um, and uh, maybe Maxime, um, uh, uh, could you have a stab at this question about um, about uh, the expectations that, that developing countries have with respect to this financial aid uh, from uh, from Western countries, that to date hasn't been forthcoming. Uh, maybe Steve, you could start off first. Sure, I mean it's a great question, and I've thought about this a lot as we watched
1: the whole pandemic unfold. Because we continue to talk about how vaccinations are not happening, how support for the developing countries is not happening. And we're in the midst of something so acute and so near term, we still are yet to get the synergy between the developed countries and the developing countries to overcome something which is right in front of us. So looking at the long term and now talking about energy technologies and to transfer funds and providing the proper support to help developing countries get positioned for something like net zero 2050. I mean, that needs to be on the table prominently. And there's you know every right for the countries now for looking at trying to move very aggressively, very quickly into adopting new technologies you know, they still have pandemics going I mean they're still trying to figure out how they're going to get people employed after the downfall of their economies from a you know a, a global pandemic which is not yet mitigated whatsoever in their in their economies. So I think that there is that need for the developed countries to look holistically at what's coming at us in the future. We're talking a about energy here today. we're talking about the potential of the need for transferring funds so that technology can be adopted within the countries, which are going to be the driving forces for energy use in the coming years. I think, to be quite honest, it's a dialogue that needs to include not just that, but needs to be looking at health as well, all the different social and political dimensions which can make these countries successful. The U.S. has been stepping up, I mean, I've seen that, and Guy probably has seen quite a bit of this in where he's located, in talking about those transfer funds, so committing more and more, which is good. You know, We're talking about the billions of dollars versus what these countries, if you look at the totality of the countries outside OECD are gonna need, and just not seeing the numbers add up. So that point you've raised and from what we've seen from dynamics between the country interactions and the commitment to funds, it's not there yet. And so I think as we talk about reality of transition, this needs to be on the table is, don't forget the countries which are gonna be driving the energy demand for the future. Because if we don't have them on board, it's not going to happen, and, and this 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 funding that we're talking about needs to be at least you know accelerated to some extent, so we can get some confidence that there is a potential for success in the future. And I again, as my point is, twenty fifty uh, net zero maybe not going to happen. I hope it happens 2070, 20, 2090. 20, 20, it's never going to happen if we don't support the countries that need the support to do what they need to do.
0: Thank you, uh, Steve, uh, Maxime. Uh, I will actually uh, would like you to answer a different question that has come up um, in a number of discussions and debates uh, going on about this entire climate change issue and net zero, net zero by 2050. And it uh, relates to you very well because France has shown us uh, what uh, mass politics and social pressure can do. After all, it was in France that uh, the biggest protests and demonstrations that occurred since 1968 with the Gilets jean uh, movement, uh, which was triggered by uh, carbon tax on, on, on fuels, on, on diesel in particular. Uh, so from your point of view, do you think that this sheer cost of imposing climate change um, uh, mandates like this net uh, zero by 2050 will be able to carry a population that is highly sensitive to the demands put on them by policy policy elites based in metropolitan areas uh, on paying higher and higher uh, costs for electricity, uh, for for gasoline, for diesel, uh, being asked to buy more expensive electric vehicles, uh, being asked to insulate their houses. Um, uh, We've talked about, we've seen poverty grow, energy poverty grow in rich countries like Germany. We've seen blackouts in California. you know, in, in, in the heartland of uh, France, where protests uh, happen quite regularly, uh, the youth <laughs> movement was 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 a major major um, thing. So, what is your view on 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 this pressure of social uh, uh, movements?
2: Uh, well so there is many, many many points in in that uh, maybe uh, well uh, first with uh, what Jitendra question and uh, he was uh, as usual uh, right to the core of the uh, the issue which is uh, okay uh, show me the money <laughs> and uh, the money is not there as Steve said uh, with this uh, 100 billion dollars that should have been kind of uh, transfer from developed country to less developed country well so it means that uh, uh, and uh, as a guy told us uh, when it's a government and uh, kind of uh, type of uh, decision uh, it means that you need to be consistent and uh, that usually you are not because you've got some uh, election coming up, or some things that will happen and transform what you, you planned into something else. So th- that's uh, what I, I would say for this mechanism uh, that was included in the uh, COP twenty one and uh, then twenty two, etc., and discussed uh, further there. Uh, but still. Uh, when we talk about this energy transition, we are talking about uh, something that is 80 years down the road. Uh, so it means many decades. It's long term, meaning that you will need to have some uh, uh, guidance over the long term. And uh, the only uh, players that can provide you this guidance over the long term is the state. That's the only player that is kind of looking uh at the long-term issues, uh, except if you believe that market will also drive the long-term welfare for everybody. But well, still, Uh, But uh, to to, to go on your, more specifically on this uh, uh, kind of yellow jacket, uh, gilet jaune issue, uh, I think it's, uh, uh, you you know, when we did the study about modeling the economic uh, uh, cost of uh, this uh, net zero emission uh, with or without uh, direct energy capture or whatever technology portfolio that you want to implement, Altogether, there is a cost in a sense that we cannot go for a net zero emission world without a significant cost that need to be shared. And that means that uh, if there is a cost, it's how will you share this cost Well, among countries, like we, we did in our study, but then uh, when you take one country, it's uh, among the people within this country, how do you share this cost? And there is one of the main challenge for uh, our governments, both the US government, but as well as the French government, it's to make it uh, acceptable uh, by uh, most of the population in a democracy uh, in order to have these people still voting for you. So, uh, w- which means that it's a large challenge. Uh, how I see it in France, in fact, it's, a. Uh, uh, We we had the opportunity with uh, uh, kind of the nuclear technologies uh, that is being used for close to 80% of the power generated in France, which is not, uh, which is totally decarbonated. Uh, So it means that uh, the uh, cost of the CO2 uh, reduction uh, will not be too strong for, for the citizens, for each of the citizens. That's the power sector. On the transport sector, uh, in fact, uh, the, the good thing, the, the, the way I see that it could, could go, uh, it's that uh, when you switch to uh, electric vehicles, uh, you are switching also to a, a kind of a, a computer with wheels meaning that you are changing totally the good and totally uh, what will be kind of the perception of the cost for the customer. So that way, uh, he will pay for the CO2 uh, reduction but at the same time, you will get a lot of new services uh, because of this uh, electric vehicles or autonomous vehicles, this, uh, all the services that you can have with the connected vehicles. And that way, you uh, will perceive this uh, uh, more value than uh, the, the CO2 cost that will be associated with the deployment of such uh, technological device. That's, uh, I, I would say two, <laughs> To, to, to pass that I will use for uh, uh, a government in order to try to avoid uh, the, the kind of uh, riots, let's be true, it was really that in France uh, that we had for uh, nearly uh, not much uh, in terms of change of the uh, price of gasoline. But uh, so it means that you, you need to, to kind of see uh, some uh, perceived value for the customer that will replace this cost of the CO2 reduction because there will be this cost. And so you, you, you need to, uh, well, to, to share it among the different uh, uh, people of uh, your uh, countries or your society.
0: Thank you, Thank you Maxim. Um, uh, uh, we are slightly out of time, uh, we are over time, uh, but I would like to end with one question directed to Guy. Uh, specifically, um, uh, and I, I'm sure he'll be able to enlighten us in a, uh, in a brief manner. Uh, uh, we've seen uh, John Kerry jetting around the world, um, uh, trying to save the world uh, and convincing people that we need to, uh, convincing governments and um, uh, both developed and developing country governments uh, with respect to climate change and net zero by 2050. What do you specifically think about the kind of discussions he probably has had with the Chinese uh, government? And what do you think are the prospects of the Chinese government actually cooperating with the U.S. with respect um, to to, to, this, um, uh, to this net zero target, uh, particularly given the fact that China is the largest, by far the largest carbon emitter in the world? Well, I think the
3: uh, you know clearly he's doing the right thing because as you pointed out that's where the growth is going to be and that's has to be a substantial reduction in coal and and he's saying to them your capital investments need to be directed in the same toward the same goal as net zero emissions by 2050 and so I think he'll get lip service and good good cooperation, but I think the, the real problem is going to be this trade issue of where using trade to reduce carbon. The CBAM by the EU, this tariff legislation in the U.S. I don't think Chinese uh, will, uh, will go along with that, uh, and so I, I, I see the, the difficulty with Kerry's pitch. Uh, being in the uh, uh, getting capital investments in non-fossil fuels uh, uh, aligned with a net zero emission scenario. So in the long run, I think it'll fail.
0: Well, uh, on that note, uh, Guy, thanks for your straightforward um, uh, frankness.
2: Uh, May may, may I add just something to to what Guy said? It's uh, also very interesting to to say that uh, if you replace all the power generated by coal by uh, something else, in fact, you will have at least uh, uh, 50% of the net zero emission goal achieved. So it means that uh, replacing coal is really the longing fruit uh, in this thing. And that really, uh, if we do that, after we you, you just need a small direct air capture or whatever, yeah. uh, it, it will be done.
0: Yes, yes. Uh, of course, um, that is the number of the issue, isn't it? Coal uh, and China um, uh, have been um, uh, a policy issue and a political issue um, that has been, uh, almost irresolvable uh, to date. And let's see where we head in the future. So on that note, let me thank my three um, excellent speakers and panelists. Um, I think we covered a fair bit of ground. Uh, the The area was wide, but we covered some of the key questions of technology um, and, um, and of, uh, of politics and, and international relations. Um, so. I thought it was an excellent discussion. I hope that more people get to watch uh, this, um, uh, this session uh, once it's recorded and distributed. Uh, so I would like to say good night to, um, uh, good evening to uh, all other uh, participants in this uh, event. And thank you. And I hope to be in touch with you again. Uh, good night from Singapore. Thank
3: you. Oh, well. Thank you.